Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. This week's episode is again dedicated to an unknown Canadian everybody should know. His name was James Tate. He was born in a small town in the Shetland, 100 miles north of the Scottish North Coast, and he came to Canada in 1884. He actually had a particular destination in mind. His uncle ran a store in Spence's Bridge, British Columbia, a small outpost in the middle of what was easily called Indian country, quote-unquote, in those days. The story of James Tate is utterly fascinating and the subject of a new study by Wendy Wickwire entitled At the Bridge, James Tate and an Anthropology of Belonging. It is published by the University of British Columbia Press. Wendy Wickwire is Emeritus Professor in the History Department at the University of Victoria, and we reached her at her office in Victoria. Wendy Wickwire, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Patrice. It's uh, a pleasure and an honor to be included in this very prestigious show. Well, you're too nice. You're too nice. You're the witness to yesterday on this podcast. Tell us what happened at Spence's Bridge in September 1894. Well, I'm really glad you highlighted that date and that year because I think there was there was an explosive meeting that happened there at that time. Uh, Franz Boas, who became a very famous anthropologist in North America, was a newly minted uh, physicist, uh, geographer, um, trying to make his way in North America, and he landed by train in Spence's Bridge. He was working on contract, trying to do some work with some indigenous peoples, having a very difficult time. He stepped off the train, and somebody said, well, you must head up this mountain and meet this guy, James Tate. He knows a lot about these people. And that meeting proved to be really momentous because it led to a, just a, a huge treasure trove of ethnographic monographs, museum collections, reports on Indigenous people such as North America really doesn't have. So who's James Tate in 1894? Well, he he was, as you mentioned in your introduction, he was a Shetlander who ended up in, in Spence's Bridge at age 19 uh, via an uncle, John Murray, who had a trade store and a hotel there. And he had sent word to the family in Shetland that if one of the kids was interested in coming to work as a clerk in a store, he, he should come. So Tate came and he worked as a clerk in the store and the indigenous people in Tlacapmac used that store regularly, so he came into close contact with him. Within three years, he was um, cohabiting and later married Luciantko, who was a Tlacapmac woman. And he really um, took to her culture and her community. Maybe he was homesick. I'm trying to figure it out. Because in those communities, you had a lot of itinerant laborers, mostly young men. In the adjacent indigenous communities, you know, you had a a wide section of people. Anyway, he gravitated into her community, started hunting and fishing. But most importantly, he learned the language. He immersed himself in that language and her language and became totally fluent in it. So really spent 10 years up to that meeting with Franz Boas uh, bonding with the indigenous communities, which very few young settler um, immigrants were doing. So tell us about the other uh, half of this meeting. Who is Franz Boas? So Franz Boas was 
from Germany. He was six years older than Tate. As I mentioned, he he was highly educated. He had degrees, a you know, PhD in, in physics. He was a mathematician. He was moving into the field of geography and saw himself as as hoped he hoped to become you know in part of this newly um, anthropology movement and we hoped to land a job in North America in a museum as a curator or a university as a as a, an anthropology professor and in in 1894 he was still forging his way not making much headway in the line of work um, but eventually, in 19, 1896, ended up with a curatorship at the American Museum of, of Natural History. That was two years after meeting Tate in New York City, which gave him a fair bit of uh, secure job security, but also landed a big research project called the Jessup North Pacific Expedition, a big, well-endowed one, which then he used to to create a huge field project of his own on the west coast and it was actually the whole pacific rim so it extended around to you know russia and and right around the pacific rim so he used that to do an extensive amount of research and then ended up shortly after that getting a job in anthropology at columbia the first establishing an anthropology department so this guy is 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 one of the cornerstones of anthropology and he meets james tate james tate has my understanding from your book is that he has no education. Well, I originally thought that until I really dug into the Shetland side. Okay. Now, he did have schooling up until age 16, which was quite late for Scotland at that time. And he got, a, obviously, the, the, the Scots at this time in the 1870s got a good education, a well-rounded education. Mm-hmm. I've been following some of the Scots who ended up here, and they really did know their botany. They did know, um, anyway, Tate had a, a passion, passion for history, politics, language, botany, a lot of stuff, and he was really into his own community history. The, he he was very anti-colonial, and you know, as he established himself in BC, and I really trace that to Shetland, that his generation grew up sort of with an antipathy toward the British colonization of Shetland, which was he, happened he, you know, he in could, the 15th century. And he could write. He could write. He he was he was a beautiful writer mm. and gorgeous, beautiful, easy to read handwriting, and and a keen observer of everything. And he had rejected religion, um, you know, so that he approaches indigenous culture with, with sort of a blank slate. He's not trying to sort of see it through a Christian lens. And he had a political headspace that kind of lent itself. He joined the Socialist Party in 1902. He had a political headspace that also lent itself well to the kind of perspective that he offered to the indigenous research that he was doing and the politics that he eventually so, embraced. So Franz Boas finds a treasure in September of 1894. He finds a true treasure, and he works it to death from 1894 when he meets Tate until 1922 when Tate dies. It's just a steady stream of of research. And people don't really realize that that Boaz, who became the father of American anthropology, like revered in North America, uh, really 
he 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 seizes on Canada's northwest coast as his field site, yeah. but from 1900 until 1920, he only comes once in 1914 for a couple of weeks because he has Tate doing all of his research for him by mail. All he had to do was send in questions, and Tate would write detailed answers. And he had George Hunt, another whole story, by the way, Walk. Uh, doing Kwakwakiwak research on the coast. So between the two of these, and George Hunt has this fascinating story as Tate, Boaz could really stay in New York City and do ethnography by mail. So James Tate is a subcontractor, is he? He he is in a way, and he ends up in the historical records as kind of a footnote to Boaz. As Boaz is research assistant, and as you follow him through the anthropological histories, he comes out as, you know, really badly. Some describe him as a sheep herder. Well, he had nothing to do with sheep. Or as a squaw man, which might have something, a derogatory term mm-hmm. related to his marriage to, to Antco. Um, he really, and he gets buried. He Sometimes he appears as the, on the title page as the author, but after his death for 10 years, when Boaz works on getting more of his work out, Tate gets really moved to the margins, and he just disappears. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Tell me more about this relationship between Boaz and Tate. Is, is Tate being paid for this work? He's being paid for this work, and he's able to combine it with his other forms of work, which is seasonal. He's a, he's a hunting guide going all over B.C., but mm. way up into northern B.C. for most of the late summer and early fall. He's had various jobs before that. He, did, he trapped. He took whatever he could get. He worked in the coal mines. But mostly he was he was a guide he worked in this ethnography quite nicely in the summer months writing up reports for boaz in the winter um he the association becomes um kind of um hierarchical i, I think it serves Tate fairly well financially mm-hmm. and it allows Tate to do work that he loves. He loves the eth- ethnography. So in that sense, it's not exploitative. I think they were on friendly terms through the whole relationship. Sometimes there's frustration at Boaz's end that he doesn't think that Tate's <laughs> getting what he wants exactly. And sometimes there's frustration on Tate, but Tate's a really nice guy. He's he just maybe sometimes he's too nice, so he just keeps plodding along, trying to fulfill what Boaz asks of him. And Edward Sapir in Ottawa, who's got the first job, you know, Canadian our Canadian government. We, we don't often understand its right. role in all of this because right. its Canadian Geological Service, Survey of Canada um, establishes an anthropology department in 1910, and they hire one of Boaz's students who also wants Tate to work for him. Right. So does does Tate, I mean, Tate does manage to publish his own material during these years, does he not? Well, much of it is through Boaz. The, you know, 11 major monographs are through Boaz. Mm-hmm. What I really like with the relationship with Sapir in Ottawa is that Sapir gets him doing a ton of work too, but it mostly becomes field notes. Right. Recordings, collections well documented. And, you know, what we enjoy as historians today and as anthropologists is the raw material. So Sapir allowed it to sort of stay in the raw material form. He Boaz always wanted to get the publications out. To do that, he took 
dictates raw material and edited it, heavily edited. So what we see in the monographs, and, you know, Boaz acknowledges it's edited by Boaz, edited by Boaz. The stories and so much of what went through Boaz's hands ended up being radically edited. So what we're doing today, everyone who's involved in this research with George Hunt and Tate, we're all trying to get as much as we can from the raw, spontaneous field notes. That's where the gold mine mm-hmm. lies. That prompts me to ask you about you. You started on this project a long time ago, and it was mostly through music. And you mentioned those recordings. Those were recordings made by Tate? What's the story here? The recordings were made in Ottawa while Tate was grinding away, trying to fulfill contracts with Boaz, but also trying to to unload Boaz to a certain extent and work fully with Sapir. So Sapir in Ottawa, provided him with uh, a recording device, one of those early wax cylinder recording machines. And Tate set it up in his office at Spence's Bridge. He had a little building called an office. And between 1912 and 1920, he recorded over 200 songs. And he just, and these were just comic people, about approximately 30 of them, half were women, which is really unusual for this time. Mm. And they told stories. He recorded, as Tate always did, the fine details. Their Indian names, their um, their uh, stories associated, the, the, the text, song texts, if there is any of that in the language and translations. He recorded about the same number for uh, on one of you know his northern trips into the Taltan Sakani Kaska territory in the northern British Columbia. So there are over four hundred. I was doing this dissertation on songs in the right. 70s and I was so thrilled to find this early collection. Are any of those songs available to us today? Are they on the internet? Yes, they're all um, right in Ottawa at part of the collection of the Canadian Museum of History archive, and they. They were on wax cylinders. When I listened to them first, they were on huge really? reel-to-reels. Really? I got reel-to-reel copies, which I ended up playing, you know, taking to the communities, which they loved hearing in the 80s, in the early 1980s. And then they transferred them to cassettes, tapes, and I think they're in the process of digitizing. Well, they are digitizing them now. They are. So the whole collection is being digitized, and it really is a treasure. I should mention that Boaz in 1897 was there as part of that Jessup expedition project, and he recorded songs, about 40 of them, up at mm-hmm. Tate's Cabin, and, you know, above Spence's Bridge in 1897, in June of 1897. That is a really rare collection. And those singers who sang in 1897, one of whom was Tate's wife, many of them were on the later recordings. It just gives that those communities such a backdrop. They've got photographs of those singers. They've got audio recordings. They've got song notes. It's just a beautiful collection. It's an awesome gift. It's a gift. Now, you, I want to talk about the style of your book. Uh, you insert yourself um, throughout these pages. You describe the various steps that shaped your research. I have to say it's very effective, uh, and, and it makes your book a real page-turner. In fact, I'm really tempted to follow. I'm tempted to follow your example and put myself in my own book. What's the advantage of your method, and, and is there a disadvantage? Well, Patrice, I really hope you try to experiment with this a bit because it definitely is non-conventional. It's kind of taboo. That, But somehow I got into this idea that 
third-person authorial voice gives the sense that the writer is the authority that that really has the handle on this topic. I really wanted the readers to know, I think more and more today, readers want to know where information comes from, who's behind it, how did the author come to know this? And, you know, as I got going on it, it's kind of liberating. It allows you to write <laughs> yes. in a very open-ended way and to also locate your story much more in this this frame that, that, that it is your perspective. And, and I want readers to know that this is my perspective on this material. Somebody else might see it differently. It also gives you a sense to write the archivists in. Yes, as you yes. kind of write your own trails, you document your own trail. How did you come to all this? And as you know, mine covers a long period. We, I don't know about you, but when I pick up a book in a bookstore, I often go first to the acknowledgement. I do I too. See, I do. Yes. Because that's the only place yes. you can kind of get the personal yes. imprint. But what's the disadvantage? Do you not fear that you're losing some of that voice of God factor? Well... I do butt out partway through. You know, I'm I'm really there in chapters one, two, and three. Mm. By four, you know, kind of. You're down I, to science again. You know, I so I do, for those who really don't want too much of me, it is a delicate process. I think too much could be not great. I think that if you're going to do it, you have to run it by people who are very honest with you, who tell you that maybe it's a bit too much. Mm. Um, so, and, but it also helped me with the Shetland side of the story. I thought, how do I deliver this to my readers? Do oh. I just lay a history fact by fact by fact on them, the Shetland history? I found it really liberating when I thought, nope, I'm going to take readers on my trip. And I'm, I'm happy to follow along. <laughs> how, it, how the Shetland stuff unfolded yeah. for me. And then it became a really fun writing exercise. Well, it's a fun reading exercise, Wendy. It's a- oh, well, that's. That's so nice to hear. I, you'll have to let me know how it goes. You <laughs> experiment with this because yeah. it is not. It is like putting your acknowledgments in, in into your into your story, trying to sort of write. I really loved putting archivists mm. into my first chapter. They worked so hard with us, and yet we sort of hive them off as a name and an acknowledgement. You're absolutely right. Let's get back to James Tate. Um, you make the argument that Tate's project was intimately tied to the idea of belonging. What do you mean by that? Belonging just kind of jumped out um, as as a really meaningful term for me. Well, you know, I do link it to the German philosopher Heidegger, who was definitely into that term as important. But then I found it again when I was looking through the earlier anthropological sources, and I found it really tied to Shetland through an anthropologist called Anthony Cohen, who'd done work in Newfoundland and then in Shetland, and he came away with this idea of of, of communities being being really rooted around the idea people as this 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 idea of of belonging community belonging and then of course Tate it if you look at his ethnography his 40 years there it really is a relationship of belonging he obviously sought out the indigenous community and wanted to be really in there in a way that I haven't seen for any other outsider. He wanted to be their witness. He wanted to be with them, not even just through his marriage to Antco, but to move up, establish a, uh, you know, his own, their own piece of land, Lucy and Antco, Antco and Tate, right 
next to her reserve so that she wouldn't lose her relationship to that community. That really, I think the indigenous people respected him because he understood that about their lives. Antco died, uh, what, they were together a dozen years? Yes. And he remarried. Yes, um, she died sadly of pneumonia in 1899, mm. and that seems to have been a really difficult time for him. I really loved finding that, you know, they had a traditional funeral, they had a sort of paying off traditional ceremony of all the people who had helped with the funeral a year later, so he did everything traditionally. Um, with her, I I wonder if the field th- trip that he took right after his death, which he did many, many, many miles alone on foot, mm. I wondered if it was to overcome his feelings of sadness about that, because he wrote that he was really broken up. Now, in 1894, he remarried, and uh, a lo- this time to a local rancher's daughter. This was a family that came from France in the 1870s and had two daughters, and he married the older of the two daughters. And she was much younger than he was, but they had five kids. I feel for her because he was away so much, and he died leaving these five young children and you met one no of them. money. And you met one of them. I met two of, two of them. them. I met uh, Inga, the daughter, who was about 15 when her father died, and I met Sigurd, who was seven, I dedicated the book to Sigurd because he spent his whole life really searching for anything he could find about his father and was so helpful. He kind of sought me out to to write this book. And I felt, you know, at the beginning, I said, yes, yes, I can do this. And it really did take me a long time. And Sigurd died before before it it, um, appeared. And Inga's son, you know, his family has been popping out of the wood. Jim Tate, a grandson, who is Magnus's son, who uh, lives in Prince George, who provided me with a lot of um, stories and photographs. Um, I love it when an email pops in from Jim Tate, James Tate. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's another aspect to James Tate beyond his uh, anthropological observation, and that's that he became an activist of sorts. Can you tell us that story? Well... A very important side I just alluded to at the beginning. I think that he grew up as a teenager in an atmosphere of sort of slight sort of discomfort with the history that had enveloped um, Shetland, you know, clearances and the Scots and such control. So hence he wanted to feel that he was much more Scandinavian than British. Anyway, in 1908, the chiefs asked him to help them with a with a petition, we failed to re- to appreciate the extent to which they were compromised by speaking many languages in their own languages. They were multilingual in Tlacapacan adjacent languages and Chinook jargon, but spoke no English. So Tate was fluent in three languages. So they called on him to help with a petition, mostly to complain to DIA about their awful agent, Indian agent. But then it became a nineteen from 1909 to 1922 really like full-on protest, mostly the land question. You know, they really felt that that had never, and they, that's the problem today, it had never been properly extinguished, the land. Right. Um, there were no treaties. That, so they were arguing that the, the Settler Colonial Project in British Columbia stood on stolen land. They wanted their case to be settled in the British high courts. And so they made that case in Spain, in spades, with trips to 
Ottawa and Victoria, three major trips in 1912, 1916, 1920, arguing this case. And it looked like, you know, Laurier might help them in 1910. And then he got defeated by by Robert Borden. And yes. then there was just no way Robert Borden or the provincial premier, Richard McBride, would hear any of it. So it was really a struggle, and Tate was right in the middle of that struggle, writing petitions for them, you know, at working three days with sometimes 400 chiefs at Spences Bridge, all speaking different languages from all over BC, to try to draft a two- or three-page statement that they could send to DIA or send to the Prime Minister or send to the Premier. It was really intense. What a portrait you draw. And yet we don't know this man's name. You say that people erased him. What happened to him and his reputation after he died? Well, somehow he completely disappeared. I end my book with the story of, you know, one journalist who I'd love to know more about, and I love that he came from Nova Scotia because I'm from Nova Scotia too and ended up as an older um, newspaper man in, in Vancouver. And he was one of the first, to, you know, after Tate's death to say, my gosh, what happened? You know, this man did so much. And, and you know, this this New York-based Columbia University professor, Franz Bo, as he named him, owes everything to James Tate. He, he wrote this in an obituary, this journalist in Vancouver. And, you know, somehow he disappeared. He, he's not in anthropology's histories. He's not in... Um, uh, he somehow disappeared there. Boaz kind of invisibilized him. Uh, Marius Barbeau in Ottawa kind of gradually wrote him out of the projects that he he did in Ottawa. Of course, I think the Canadian state blackballed people. They were white agitators, quote unquote, that they that were you know held responsible for all this activism. So of course, the Indians were well satisfied with their position, so they blamed any agitation on these white so-called agitators. So they weren't interested in in carrying on the name of of Tate. But so somehow he just completely disappeared, which became his son Sigurd's problem. Why? Where was his father in in these histories? He really you you can look through the major histories of anthropologies to this day, and you will not find him. Mm. You know, I just read the latest book on Boaz, um, a blockbuster U.S. bestseller that just appeared, you know, six or eight months ago, and but Tate is not in the index. So this became, you know, a major hook for my story. How do we get him? That's why I'm so thrilled about your podcast, because the more people across Canada who listen to this, who hear this story, who read the book, I hope we'll, we'll see this is, this is someone who needs to be known across the country for what he did for, for Indigenous chiefs who were so agitated and so worked up about, you know, their situation. Tate worked so hard and he left such a trail of papers. So the more people can unearth the petitions and the documents and the ethnography, the more they will see that here is a treasure trove of indigeneity. Can I ask you what might be an unfair question? Um, to what do you, To what degree do you think that the work of James Tate today can help Canadians with reconciliation, with the task of reconciliation? Well, I really, I, I think of, uh, you know, I did a little book tour in um, through these communities where Tate lived in the south-central interior, 
And I really loved hearing from Karen Dunstan, who's um, a member of the Lytton First Nation. She said, I really want to hear what white people think of this book. And they had just made beautiful... Um, beautiful tributes to the book at a at a book event in Lytton where chiefs spoke and others spoke and, and and Karen said I really want to hear what white people think about this book it, it really made me feel very good because it you know they seemed to appreciate my presentation of the story and felt that it it might I've got the sense that it might be sort of what Karen wants people to hear and that maybe that hearing that story as it ripples across the country people will understand their situation more. Um, I think Tate's story also, hopefully it will draw them into his work and his writing, which is 40 years of depth on Indigenous history and culture. You so rarely get that. You get little blips, little glimpses, and you don't really trust them because they're often put together by, you know, a sojourner. Somebody spends a little time there, but not much. But 40 years of dedication and love for for that region. And it's not just, it's all of the South Central tier. It reaches down in the U.S. It's all, you know, it's it's the Taltan and the Northern peoples. So you really get a sense for British Columbia of richness that I don't think you have in a lot of early materials. So they'll see, I also love that they see these chiefs in the first decade two decades of the 20th century arguing the similar yes. cases, you know, yes. are make, presenting similar arguments as these chiefs, these Wet'suwet'en chiefs and the chiefs across Canada. Like, listen to us, pay attention yes. to I, us. Well, I think this is, I think that's, when I'm reading your book, I, I get the sense that Tate shows us how to respect. Wendy, I have to ask you one last question, uh, and that's the classic Champlain Society question. What were your sources for this book? You say at the end of your book that you're just beginning studies on Tate. What is out there? Well, there's masses, and it's interesting that you do ask that because it really is crosses the into the U.S. crosses the the border into the U.S. because the mother load is at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. You know, Boaz's professional papers got they landed there viable and that massive correspondence that I alluded to because the wonderful thing is that when you aren't doing the field work you're in New York City and you're writing letters twice a week to British Columbia asking for information and Tate's responding you've got a wonderful rich correspondence as well as field notes so a great load is there and uh, a wonderful curator Brian Carpenter who is so helpful to everybody who who, who expresses an, as an interest in it. There are fellowships for Indigenous people to go work with those materials and other scholars and graduate students. The other big treasure trove is in our um, uh, Canadian Museum of History archive, because remember I mentioned Edward Sapir. S-A-P-I-R. So there's a huge yes. number, all the recordings, yes. photographs. Mm. Field notes, just masses, huge collections. So maybe you've Are given there Chicago, some in Chicago, some right. in Victoria. So maybe no, there's. I forgot to the big one. Yes, New York City. Oh, American Museum of Natural History. Their anthropological um, uh, papers are in their archive. They're a huge load, and everybody's. You know, all of these institutions are busy digitizing. I had to go get them right. in my day, but now you can click on, and you know, gradually, it's all being digitized. 
So maybe we're at the dawn of a Tate Renaissance. We are, and I'm really happy to say that there's another book in the works. Good. University of Nebraska Press, and two of the researchers on that project, two of the co-authors, Angie Bain and John Hogan, are in Tlacatma. So that, of course, makes me very happy, too. They're working on Tate's work on maps and place names, and, you know, they're going to get the letters, the correspondence out. It's, It's just a big, beautiful project, and I just hope that many more come from this. We'll have to end it on that note, Wendy. Thank you so much for being my guest. Patrice, thank you so much. Wendy Wickwire is Emeritus Professor in the History Department at the University of Victoria, and her book is At the Bridge, James Tate and an Anthropology of Belonging, published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. And if you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 25, 2020 and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.